like the show? Want to listen to episodes early? Consider becoming a patron. Starting at the $3 a month level, patrons get access to a custom patron-only feed where we put out episodes of Upstairs Studio podcasts like the Child Care Bar and Grill, Miss Becky's Classroom, That Early Childhood Nerd, the Renegade Rules podcast, and others early. That feed is just for patrons. You could be one of them. Go to patreon.com slash playvolutionhq or click the link in the show description to learn more. Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt Santee, and today I am joined by Elliot Haspel, who is the author of Crawling Behind America's Child Care Crisis and How to Fix It. Um, listeners by this time will have heard us talk about this a little bit, refer to the book in other conversations, and people who follow my Twitter and, and Facebook will have heard me mention it too as we read through. But um, So welcome, Elliot, and what would you like folks to know about you before we start? Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, so I examined early childhood, uh, you know, sort of policy wonk. Um, you know, I, I previously, uh, you know, I was a fourth grade teacher myself, but not an early childhood educator, but I've been working early childhood for quite a while now. Um, and I currently work at a, a philanthropic foundation in Richmond, Virginia, where I focus on um, sort of early childhood systems building. Yeah, great. Um, and also, I, if I'm remembering right, you're a child care consumer. I am, yes. I have uh, three and a five-year-old uh, daughters, and so, okay. yes, definitely living that early childhood life every day. Yeah, yeah, so you've seen both sides. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you that I, re- I, I opened this book with great trepidation, because as a field, we're very aware of the issues, but also very nervous of anything that sounds like government takeover. <laughs> So I know we'll touch on that as we talk, but I, so I want to thank you because I really feel like, um, even though I was nervous going in, um, I, I, I feel like every policymaker who makes promises about childcare needs to read this book now. So thank you. Yeah. So the quote we're going to use to start the conversation, um, comes from page 55 of your book. And it says parents should be able to choose a childcare setup that works for their family and enables them to be productive members of society. That's not happening in our failed childcare market. Parents do not have the purchasing power for their demand to drive supply, and providers do not have anywhere else to turn to in order to stay solvent. Um, and I, I chose that because I felt like it was a good starting point for, for you just to sort of outline what you're suggesting, and then we, can, then we can go, because this is the issue. We don't have enough money in the field to pay people living wages, to, um, to reward 
you know, those who are going back and getting degrees are coming in with degrees and parents can't afford to pay a whole lot more than they already do. So, so we have this, we have this very real crisis. Yeah, we would do. And, you know, I think childcare is interesting because you really do, I think, want to center the sort of family preference and family choice in, in a way that almost more than when you want to think about like public education, because the early years are so development is so, so driven by you know, relationships, it's driven by kind of the, the thriving of the family. And so if you have a family that's, you know, really stressed out because they can't find a provider that they feel comfortable with, like that has a negative effect on, on child development in and of itself. And so mm-hmm. um, I sometimes like to sort of start by centering the family and get to sort of the childcare supply and then, you know, living wages and the practitioners and all the rest mm-hmm. of it through that, um, you know, whereas rather than starting sort of from the supply side itself, um, and I think you kind of can get to, to both goals that way. Mm-hmm. So um, if you had parents who did feel like they could choose among any number of qualified, high quality providers and that they could afford it, um, then you could see a flourishing market, right? You could see something where if a parent preferred a family child care provider, if they preferred a center, if they preferred going to, you know, a, a religiously based provider, whatever it is, um, that they were able to, to access that and that the amount of money flowing to those providers was high enough that they could hire staff, pay them good wages, retain those staff, you know, mm-hmm. do the curriculum, professional development, all the things that we know drive quality within a a care setting. But right now, none of that happens because, mm-hmm. you know, we don't have parents basically have very few choices. Usually um, and they're constrained by, you know, both what they can afford and what's in their area. You know, the mm-hmm. stories we always hear about parents who like mm-hmm. are signing up for waiting lists, you know, when they're, you know, two months two pregnant. Before, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> We're starting to think about having a baby, yeah. um, you know, and then, you know, the providers themselves, you know, really even with full pay parents aren't, you know, they're barely keeping the lights on. Yeah. Nothing of pandemic times. That is only. Sure. Right. That adds a whole other layer to this conversation. And I, you know, a half hour, we may not be able to hit all the possible aspects that need to be considered. But so you, you frame your proposal as uh, coming from a place where we just need to acknowledge that um, childcare, early childhood education is a common good in the same way that public school is, but not to operate from that public school model, if I'm yeah, summing that's that right. up correctly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there are some things that are great about American public education. It is, you know, free to everyone. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, Bill Gates, can, you know, Jeff Bezos can send their kids for free to the neighborhood school, same as you and I. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that no one really has access problems to it, right? Like you, you don't have usually trouble finding a slot in your neighborhood school. Like, <laughs> we're good at that. Um, yeah. But there are deep, huge, and, you know, problems with the system, you know, in terms of inequities that, you know, we know that children of color and lower income children are getting usually inferior educations to their counterparts, you know, we know that there are just, you know, there's a chronic problems in terms of their facilities or, you know, work or so what we wouldn't want to do is just sort of copy over the, you know, public education system, but we can learn from its status as a public good mm-hmm. um, and then apply that to, you know, the, the early childhood context, I think, in a way that we kind of get the, the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think one thing, I know one thing, and so most of the listeners of this podcast, I feel pretty safe saying, are advocates for play-based learning and have deep concerns about early academics sort of taking over early childhood programs. And um, uh, so 
so that, um, I guess, knowing that that's where a lot of folks are listening to, they have a concern that standard measurements of quality in our field so far have been sort of tending very much towards um, uh, the easily measurable school readiness kinds of things. This yeah. is how you know it's quality. And so this this is how we will get you more voucher dollars or mm-hmm. um, parents don't feel like they really have a choice. And then providers who maybe don't fit that academic mold have a lot of nervousness, anxiety yeah. about plans like this. So um, that was sort of just a, I know a jumble of thoughts, but respond now to my jumble of thoughts. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're right. Like I, I mean, kind of to your point, what we talked about a second ago about the public schools, like I don't like the idea of just backing up public school further and further into mm-hmm. uh, early childhood, right? Like that is, it is certainly one philosophy and one model where you basically say, okay, like, instead of kindergarten right now we're doing pre-k for everyone right. and now we're doing for the three-year-olds and now we're doing it for two-year-old and you just kind of keep taking the system and marching it backwards um yeah it's a school of thought i don't think it's supported by the child development research i right. don't think it, it gets different parents or providers need but so yeah and, and i think part of the value of keeping parent choices right if you basically say you know broadly speaking we need we know every center every provider needs to have some measures right we need some health and safety standards we need Mm -hmm. some you know measures of of quality that's fine but like you know we're not going to worrying less about like the standardized assessment all of what you're talking about the school Mm -hmm. readiness conversation Mm -hmm. um and then empowering parents to choose that then you're going to start to see you know parents that do want to gravitate more towards play-based there may be some parents that prefer the more sort of like academically focused ones and that's all fine the the problem is that you don't want policy to put its thumb on the scale mm-hmm. too much. And, and it can certainly do that if you um, focus, you know, kind of on this idea of like, uh, so the mass public provision versus like the more mixed delivery or the more, um, you know, parent uh, choice centered, uh, you know, idea, which, you know, I, I think uh, is a, probably we're seeing a few examples of that crop up. Mm-hmm. Um, even since I wrote the book, I've become much more familiar with the Denver preschool program, which I sometimes hold up as an, an interesting mm-hmm. example of this, where basically parents can choose any uh, sort of like center within that network. Uh, and the, that's, you know, it's public, it's private, there's all sorts of different kinds, but you know, then they say to the city of Denver, I want my kid going to, you know, center X. And then the Denver basically pays into that center. It's up to like $7,500. So it's not exactly uh-huh. what I'm talking about. It's not a full where it's free for parents, but uh-huh. it is an idea where basically it operates as a voucher, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, for parents to choose the kind of care that they want. Yeah. So um, uh, can I, can I ask you to talk about um, so your your proposal is a credit essentially to families to be used, um, you know that's an annual amount fixed amount, um, and p- families can use that within some some limits to choose a childcare uh, setting that fits their family. If, if I'm saying that correctly. So what are um, what are some of the barriers you think we would need to look at? because i'm i'm just saying let's do it (laughs) but i'm not a policy wonk i'm an advocate for childhood and families um so so what what do we need to think about 
Yeah, I mean, a couple of things, like, right, like, the the number one thing is obviously funding, right? Like, we don't, like, right now, like I mentioned, there are a few examples of sort of what I'm talking about, Denver Uh Preschool Program, the Minnesota Early Learning Scholarships, you know, um, there are a couple of these places, but in all these cases, they're they're means tested, so they're targeted towards families that, you know, make under a certain income, Um, they're not fully paying, again, for the cost of care, so that's, part of it is you see a lot of these, um, a lot of the conversation about affordability sometimes lose the other part of it. You lose the thread because you could right now say like, I'm magic waving a magic wand and the government is paying hundred percent of parent fees or no more parent <laughs> fees in childcare. Congratulations. Yeah. And parents would be like, yes, that's awesome. And childcare providers would be like, we still can't pay our staff more than like $12 <laughs> an hour. Right? Like, because that wasn't actually the, the, that's not the true cost of care. So, right. you know, I think part of this is, is making, policymakers understand like we're going to need to put in more aggregate money into the system like these you know the credits the, the scholarships whatever you want to call them need to be more than just uh-huh. you know what we're the current quote-unquote market rate which I really don't like that term because it's not yeah. actually the market rate it's an artificially right. depressed market rate um you know so that's the one piece of it uh, you know and certainly anytime you go to a more sort of choice-based system and we see this some in um kind of K-12, the sort of public charter school conversation is there can be like information asymmetry, which is basically just the idea that a provider has more information than a parent, right? And Mm -hmm. then parents, some, there are some research that suggests parents aren't super great about, you know, knowing like what to look for, right? Mm -hmm. What questions to ask. So there is certainly a piece of that conversation of like, how do we make sure the parents are sort of, this is called savvy consumers for like lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, but to me, that's something that can be addressed with programming, right? You can do, like, that's not a reason to not do it. That's uh-huh. just, like, a, a challenge you would have to address. Because you, you certainly, in any system, you, you're going to get a couple percent, you know, one or two percent that are not great actors. I mean, I think people tend to overfocus on the bad actors and the 98% uh-huh. of those are going to be justifying great actors. Yeah. Um, but you do need to be aware of that. And, and you know, that's the one the one advantage of sort of the all public way of doing things, you do certainly seem to get a floor where like quality isn't dropping below it. But uh-huh. the, the you know, trade off of that is you're also often putting kind of a, a ceiling on, you know, I mentioned in my book, someone once called the US public education system, a gigantic compromise, everyone just kind of learned to live with, <laughs> yeah. you know, and so uh, I would rather not see that. Right, really exactly. Well. And I, I think that's where a lot of, um, concern comes is that there are there are flaws in the public education system Um, and so to hold it up as a model is sometimes problematic so so that's I appreciated that you said it needs to be seen in the same way as a common good but not necessarily delivered in the same way um, that we've that we've done because we're still you know there are advocates working yeah. And I'd even add there maybe yeah, since I wrote the book, I've come to believe like you could even see a model with like what you might want to call like a public option, right? Like I don't have a problem if like, you know, you want to have sort of the uh, government option, which basically think about it as like expanding like Head Start or Early Head Start, right? And mm-hmm. offer that and put that in like the, the system where parents can apply, you know, the credit or scholarship to that's that's fine. There may mm-hmm. be parents that prefer that, but it just the danger is when you go like all one way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think um, another area that will, I guess, I think need a lot of conversation is the idea is how do we, how would we measure who's um, sort of approved 
to, to serve in this, in this system to provide care for families to choose from to use these credits that they, you know, they might get. Because um, we can say, and this has happened in other situations, like in state quality rating systems, we say we want them to be accredited, right, um, to be able to receive this money. There's, there's only a handful of recognized accreditations. So we need to not just rely on that word. We need to really think through what that means and how does it fit with what the child development research that you refer to is telling us about how children learn. That's, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, you can think about like a difference between like accreditation and almost like licensure can kind of be two different things. Like, yes, you, you want a, a provider to be able to say like, here I am, right? Like you need to know who they are. They need to yeah. say, here's where I am. Here's my <laughs> physical address. Like, you know, here's how you contact me. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you know, you need them to be able to say where I'm going to abide by, you know, state and federal laws, right? Mm -hmm. Like around discrimination and things like that. Like that mm -hmm. often comes up, um, you know, uh, I'm going to, you know, be okay to, you know, to have an inspector come in once every, you know, year or two to, to just like make sure thing. But like this idea of, you know, you need to adopt, you know, X curriculum or you need to have Y percentage of your teachers with, you know, Z kind of degrees. Like yeah. that's where you drift off of like, because again, you know, exactly. the regulation, what you really want to do is, is again, have provide that floor of just making sure that like no one is abusing the situation. No mm -hmm. one is like taking advantage of families or kids. But within like the quality, like that becomes a whole different conversation, I think, right. you know, of, of what that. And, you know, the dirty secret about the, the quality rating systems, that there's a fair amount of research that shows they're, they're crude measures, right? Like yes. it's actually kind of hard to say like, a level two versus a level three is is meaningfully different for child outcomes when you look uh -huh. down the road. I mean, certainly there is there are higher quality programs and lower quality programs, but um, we're still not super good at identifying what exactly um, <laughs> how yeah. exactly you tie them apart. And it's and it's harder to measure some of the things. Like you do a good job in the book of really focusing on the importance of relationships yep. in in early childhood and how that sort of maybe is more important than the materials you have on the shelf or how you have your room arranged yeah. or your home. Um, but it's harder to measure then um, whether this, this childcare provider, you know, is, is able to develop strong attached reciprocal relationships right. with, with children. Um, yeah. I mean, even the entire concept of school readiness in some ways, right? Like it's still like you could have a whole another conversation yes. about whether, you know, and I've written about this in other places, like we've kind of landed in on uh, an uncritical spot where we just sort of take it that that's that the accept that that's a concept that is, you know, right and proper without thinking about like, I don't know, that sort of assumes that there is a kind of a universal line that all children should cross by the time that they, you know, enter fifth kindergarten and, you know, is that actually appropriate? Does it actually line up with child development research? There's, there's an, an active debate about that. Right. And, and I don't know that anyone has one definition of what readiness means. So we throw the phrase around and we know what kinds of things we think we can measure, but, uh, but it's like in Indiana, there's three or four different definitions of school readiness floating around. But all the funding sources say you should be focusing yeah. on school readiness. That's so. right. 
Um, so it's just really tricky. Um, but if you want to come back and talk about school readiness sometime, <laughs> we can do that because that is also one of my uh, one of my hot topics. Yeah. Um, so I, I know you said you've got you've got something you've got to you've got to do here at eleven thirty, and we're almost there. Um, if you had to, I guess, make a pitch for people to buy and read the book, what would it be? How would you make that case? I'd say like this. I wrote this book largely because once I got into this field, I was like, why is no one talking about the fact that child care should be, the public good and it should be free? Like mm -hmm. that, it wasn't even a conversation, right? That was like, you know, I started working on this five years ago, whatever, <laughs> um, you know, and so really the mission, that, that is sort of, this book is trying to answer the question, like, why isn't it free right now? What could it look like to radically reimagine child care as uh -huh. a public good? Um, and, and what do we know about like the current system and what and how we might think about changing it um, realistically, you know, in, in the future. So um, I, I say happily since that time of writing this book, like I feel like the conversation has shifted some, right? Like you had Senator Bernie Sanders during the Democratic mm -hmm. primary talking, releasing a, a universal free right. child care plan. Um, right. you know, also and, Elizabeth Warren. Also Elizabeth Warren. I mean, hers <laughs> was more, it was not as completely free, but like, right, right, you yeah. had, she was at first out of the gate with this, right? Like yeah. it, it is obviously become a huge, hot topic so um you know I, I one of my hope with the book really was written to be able to kind of level set like how did we get into this mess <laughs> and how might we get out of it right because we're not gonna you know incremental steps are just not gonna do it anymore mm -hmm. um, yeah they, they haven't been doing it before but they're definitely not gonna do it now yeah yeah um well, uh, I, I, like I said, I, I really appreciate this book. I, I feel like um, it should be required reading for a lot of people out there. <laughs> um, and, and I appreciate so much you giving your time to, to talk, and, and I hope that you will come on again sometime. To yeah, absolutely. Read. Please, anytime. And then thank you for, for the work you all are doing. All right. Thanks. Um, and thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I hope you'll come back next week. Bye. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.